The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Our show is all about the exciting world of real estate, and in particular, how it relates to the lucrative New York market. But if you're not planning a real estate transaction in New York, we still have plenty of information that you can use no matter where you are. Now, here's your host, Vince Rocco. Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to Good Morning New York. It is Tuesday, February 17th on a cold and snowy day here in New York. I guess it's winter and to be expected. I'm your host, Vince Rocco, and we are coming to you live once again from Blastoff Studios in New York. We have a full hour this morning, starting with my first guest, Kareem Rashid. Kareem is an industrial designer and interior architect. His designs include luxury goods, furniture, lighting, surface design, brand identity, and packaging. Time Magazine has described him as the most industrial, the most famous industrial designer in all the Americas. Kareem was born in Cairo, Egypt, to an Egyptian father and English mother, and he was raised in Canada. Now he is a U.S. citizen. He is married to Ivana Rashid, and together they have one child, Kiva. He is known for wearing all white or all pink clothing, and today he doesn't disappoint. We will speak to Kareem in just a minute, but first a few news items. Douglas Elliman's new Beverly Hills office just snagged itself a star. Top broker Josh Altman, a headliner on Bravo's Million Dollar Listing Los Angeles, and a guest on this show, is joining the firm with his brother Matt and six other broker teams. The Altman brothers have closed more than $1 billion in luxury sales and hold the record for selling the priciest one-bedroom in Los Angeles. Get this, $21.5 million, according to Douglas Elliman. They used to work at uh, residential brokerage Hilton and Highland. The Knicks basketball team may be having an abysmal run, but that's not enough to stop Carmelo Anthony from scoring elsewhere. The NBA star is the newest owner of a unit at 508 West 24th Street. The basketball star, together with his wife, picked up an $11 million full-floor apartment at the Highline Condo Project, this according to the New York Post. Get ready, New York, because Frederick, Ryan, and Luis are back with more drama, bigger properties, and higher prices. The new season of Million Dollar Listing New York will premiere on April 15th at 10 p.m. on Bravo. Mystery buyers forking over $100 million for apartments on Billionaire's Row may grab the headlines, but the real money in luxury real estate isn't on 57th Street. After all, it's in London. In 2014, Britain's capital overtook Hong Kong as the most expensive city in the world for new residential real estate. The average price per square foot there reached $3,380 per square foot. Yet prices for London's high-end properties are showing signs of leveling off, if not dropping slightly. The change is a result of a stronger pound relative to the euro and the U.S. dollar, coupled with higher real estate taxes and Britain's upcoming spring election. It kind of plateaued around the spring of last year and then continued to flatline throughout the year. London and New York, of course, are often talked about in the same breath, namely because their economies have more in common with each other than they do with the other countries they reside in. As a result, many in New York real estate industry are looking to London as a bellwether. Town Residential is heading south this winter in a new partnership with Miami-based Fortune International Group, a brokerage and development firm that sold $4 billion worth of real estate last year. 
The alliance was announced to nearly 600 town agents who gathered Tuesday at the Paris Theater in New York for town's annual meeting. In addition to sharing news of the alliance with Fortune, uh, executive, town executives offered a state-of-the-business update, including a recap of town's $2 billion in sales in 2014 and an update on town's new development projects, which they said totaled $3 billion. An unveiling of a new marketing campaign uh, branding guru by grand branding guru David Lippman. Stay tuned for more on that. Urban Compass, the real estate uh, brokerage firm that has raised more than $70 million, is dropping the urban from its name and will now be known simply as Compass, this according to The Real Deal. The news was confirmed by a source close to the company. The firm is changing its name to create more of a national presence, according to New York Real Estate Report. Earlier this month, Compass announced plans to expand into Miami and also into our nation's capital. And finally, Latin crooner Mark Anthony has listed the Long Island home he once shared with his ex-wife Jennifer Lopez for $12 million. The 10-bedroom, 8-bathroom Brookville Mansion features a home theater, a recording studio, and eight fireplaces and a guest house. The New York Daily News says that Anthony picked up the property in 2000 and shared it with Lopez until their divorce early last year. The singer has since remarried model uh, Shannon DeLima. So, good morning uh, to everybody again, and good morning, Kareem, and welcome to Good Morning New York. Oh, thank you. Nice to have you here today. It's a pleasure. As it's, I it's hard getting here, though. <laughs> <laughs> My taxi was skidding all over the place, actually. Yes. Um, so, as I mentioned in the introduction, you are known as an industrial designer and an interior architect. What made you get into design? Well... <clears throat> I, uh, my father was a painter, an artist, and a set designer for film and television. So we, um, we were brought up as children in a pretty creative environment. And he was always designing sets uh, constantly. So we would observe all this and draw and make. And uh, and he kind of introduces at a very early age into, let's say, the built environment, into the man-made world. And so I was fascinated by that. In fact, obsessed by it. So I started drawing every product in existence, you know, from my father's eyeglasses to the radios on our shelves to my mother's shoes to anything and and eventually it seemed inevitable you know, it was, it's a, it's interesting to me we'll get more into that later but back in those days when you were first creating in your mind or thinking that you wanted to do this what do you think was your style then well before yeah, that, you've morphed into who you've yeah, become today? well you know style is a strange word i mean I, it's, it's a word i don't like actually because design and style are very disparate you know style is a kind of embellishment that people borrow from old languages and apply them design is when you're really focusing on let's say um social behaviors of now and working with the criteria of now so it's not something that you're looking back and just trying to you know um how can i say uh, appropriate so, but uh, I think what you're asking, though, is, and I think the way people use style is to really say, well, as a, the, when I was young or even when I went to university, I think I was quite obsessed with this notion of a kind of technological language, a bit of a, a language that spoke about the digital age. And I, you know, I remember when I went to university, I was studying Fortran and Cobalt eighty and all these oh my God. languages. Yeah, same here. <laughs> yeah, uh, so we're of the same uh, terrible generation. So, um, and I, I felt this sense of change that there's going to be this massive, massive schism and shift in our um, kind of human existence, which is to go from analog to digital. So when I was drawing and designing and thinking, I was always trying to make products or objects or spaces that really, in a sense, had a reflection or spoke about this time in, in which we live. In fact, you once said, quote, it is hard for a designer to see their own style and to find their place in the world themselves. I have always referred to myself, uh, my work as sensual minimalism and techno-organic. 
How does this resonate with the designs uh, and your thought for designing for other people? You know, you have your your thoughts and you have your creations. How does this work for other people? Yeah, well, you know, it's a good point. Let me say something. As an industrial designer, or a lot of people don't even really know that term, let's say product designer. There's a tendency when you're designing a product like the water bottle sitting in front of you, mm-hmm. you know, there you're maybe selling two or three million of those a day, you know. So you have to think about a product that's for others, meaning that it's design can be a very selfless act in that way. You have to really think about everybody and who's engaging <coughs> it and embracing it. At the same time, you have to have, I think, some sense of you within that project or anybody could be doing the project, right? So the question is, what are you bringing to the table versus, and it's this kind of perpetual balance, let's say of the way I see the world or the way I like to see the world or the way I like to shape the world and also um, to address, let's say, everybody's needs and even everybody's desires too. So it's a kind of, um, you know, a, 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 I don't say how to say this, a kind of back and forth relationship, you know, is, is that I'm really interested in shifting and making people's lives better, which is I think also going back as a designer, that's really the original definition, which was this notion that it was a social act, and so design is not just a creative act by any means. It's, it's to, to make a better world, really. I remember when working with Avi, you know, I don't even know, a year, and a, half, a year and a half ago when we first walked into your apartment in Chelsea that he sold for you. And I remember walking in and thinking, wow, this is the home of someone who's very different and who's got vision, I think, you know, beyond the, 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 the normal sea of what we've seen in an apartment. It was spectacular. And the way it just was outlined, very minimal, but just comfortable. And I remember saying to him, this is unbelievable. And I hadn't met you at the time. So cheers to you. Well, thank you. You know, I just go back. You just mentioned that word, um, sensual minimalism. It's, yeah. And that's something I, I, I came, I kind of created. About, I got that from your place, by the way. Right. So I got that about 20 years ago because what I realized is a lot of designers uh, are trying to clean up the world in a way. You know, there's a certain sense of organization and a certain sense of purity and balance. And, you know, you're trying to just make things, I don't know, more seamless, right? Mm-hmm. But in minimalism, it's a bit too reductive, meaning a lot of people can't live that way. And I, I realized I couldn't live that way. You know, even though I prefer, I, be, I love beautiful order, there was something missing. And what was missing was a human element. So what I called sensual minimalism or sensualism was this idea that we can do things that are relatively uh, reductive, and yet somehow very human. Human, yeah. I agree with that. Explain to me how you do this. I mean, you were working in so many, 40 countries, I think I read, with over 3,000 designs currently in production. How do you do all this? How do you keep this all flowing in your mind? I know when I'm working with four or five, six customers at a time, it sometimes gets mind-boggling. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm dealing with just New York City. You're literally all over the place. Yeah. How do you do this? Well, listen, uh, 50, let's say I, I came to the city 22 years ago with penniless, basically, and I just started, I was teaching at RISD and I was uh, laid off there. They told me I was, I was too, um, what did they tell me? Progressive or something of that nature. <laughs> and uh, so I came to New York and I got a job, I remember, at Parsons for three days and then they fired me and told me I, they heard I was a troublemaker at Rhode Island School of Design. So then I went to Pratt. They managed to give me a teaching position one day a week. So basically I was trying to survive here in New York on, on you know, one day a week salary, which is, so I was living on roughly, um, you know, $12,000 salary a year for the first few years I was here. It was tough. And to really get going as a designer, um, you know, first of all, I had to really knock on a lot of doors and really kind of shake up the, let's say the landscape. And I decided to really focus on the States because I decided that many companies in the States who were practically giants were producing what I considered really kind of poor design. So I thought, you know, can I get into these companies and and do better work and produce better work with them. So 
that was kind of my agenda going in, um, was to really uh, make a change, make some sense of change, and to build this notion of design to make it more of a public subject. And I'll tell you, you know, when I got into design uh, in the late 70s, it was basically, you know, nobody talked about design. If you, if you mentioned the name design to somebody or the word design, they would think fashion. Correct. You know, or, or you mention it, they would think, uh, or architecture. But they, that in-between, which is these everyday items around us, the table, the microphone was sitting, the chairs were sitting, uh, everything, everything, the thermostat we interact with, all this kind of commodity that we touch on average, something like 600 products a day, each one of us, which is quite amazing. It was never spoken about at all. So when I became really aggressive and started doing a lot of work, I just realized, well, I'm going to do as much work as possible. And I, did, I was determined to be as pluralist as possible because I thought that's actually a nice way to actually help shape the culture of design, make it a public subject, and make an average person love this notion of design and realize that it can bring a lot to their lives. And then with that, I ended up, you know, staff grew and projects grew and I, I kind of perpetually tried to stay as plural as possible too because I, I really like touching every part of our physical landscape. So I'd do a perfume bottle or a house. It really didn't really matter to me, the difference. And you, yeah. you do. Let's hold it right there for a minute. Okay, we sure. have to take a break. Sorry. Yeah. But first, you are listening to Good Morning New York on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll be right back. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at bluerealtygroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we're back. We're talking to Kareem Rashid. You mentioned fashion before we went to break. Is there competition between product designers and fashion designers that create couture designs for private clients. I mean, everybody likes to walk around saying they're a designer, but as you indicated before the break, there is a clear difference here. Is there competition between the two, um, especially in light of Fashion Week this week here in New York City? Yeah, I, I don't know if it's competition or not. I think, you know, fashion, the fashion industry is for me a very bizarre, and a kind of peculiar one because in it, there's so much regressive thinking perpetually. You know, it's amazing how we're just like, copying and copying and copying and appropriating and, and derivating the past onward. And in design, and that's not all fashion designers by any means, and I've had a very close relationship with many fashion designers that I've designed with. I've designed, I worked uh, with this Amy Yaki for a very long time, did a lot of his cosmetics and others. And there's some brilliant people in fashion design, but the majority of it is just regurgitating history. 
Whereas industrial design or product design, like the headphones you're wearing, it's all about the technology of today, the materials of today, the social behavior of today. So when you see industrial design enter into the fashion industry, that's a lot of times when you see progress. And I'll give you an example. If you look at running shoes, the sneaker industry, sneaker industry right now is something like 50% of the world's shoe industry. It's phenomenal. So, and you see the most advanced technologies, amazing design. The things that are going on in that world are incredible. It's about performance, but it's also about design, style. It's about shape. It's about color. It's about material. That's all done by industrial designers, not by the fashion industry. Mm. So it's interesting when you see industrial designers, I'm not, you know, just trying to put up my profession here, but enter the fashion world. They're the ones who tend to help or shape or make it a little bit more relevant, let's say, and more about now. I agree, and I think people don't necessarily understand the the definition of industrial designer. So, you thank you for the clarification. I'm curious to know, though, about it, everything you've done. You've, you've designed from salt shakers to to running shoes to furniture, Lord knows what else. And you're inspired by a lot of things. But what, how how did you go from that type of design into now buildings, which you are currently working in? Right. Um, well, it was, um, you know, fortunate around 2002, I ended up doing my first building, which was really a, a white box with uh, fluorescent <laughs> um, balconies in uh, Athens, Greece. And uh, it was a uh-huh. hotel called Semiramis. And it was an old building that we had to gut. But then as we were gutting the building, it basically fell down. They realized we need a new structure. So I went up against the, you know, the landmark board there and everything and tried to push to do a fairly progressive new building. And I ended up with something quite minimal and simple, but uh, it was my first building. So that was about 12 years ago. And then after that, I think, you know, the next lucky break I got, I was doing budget hotels in Germany. And I do these, um, I'm designing for a chain of hotels that is now three built. They're two-star price, so they're like 39 euro to stay there. But they're so high designed, you'd be shocked. You go there and you think that you're in a four-star hotel. And But they're really done on a phenomenally tight budget in order to charge those kind of prices. And I got to do that building uh, in Germany. So it started slowly that way. And then it was really fortunate, I guess, my real um, – the greatest opportunity I got was, was this great developer called Hap here in, uh, in New right. York that came from Israel, uh, Hap and, um, uh, developers. And they uh, got me to do a couple of projects. I ended up doing three projects in Harlem, which are all – two of them are under construction right now. And then we're doing a very, very big project in Chelsea and and a few other things. So um, it started rolling and then I got to do some projects in Miami. I'm doing a, a, a building right there right now. So it's uh, become now part of my, my um, exhaustive pluralism. <laughs> well, as I asked you before, how do you find time to run around the world doing all these projects? It's in May. Do you work on airplanes? Yeah, I mean, I, I, spend, I, I spend about half my life on the airplane. And and uh, uh, on the airplane, it's and you can't take a drafting board with you on a plane, though, right? Well, you take you take a laptop and an iPad. It's amazing <laughs> you can accomplish far more than a drafting table. I'm so sure you, can. you know, and and the world has changed that way now, as we all know that yeah. we're all kind of working everywhere. And uh, so, you know, but you know, work for me is an interesting. When you say how do you get all this done, is that I love what I do, and and not only do I love what I do, but I don't really look at it as work. In fact, the odd time, maybe once every couple of months in the afternoon, I feel like. You know, hitting somebody or something of that nature because all of a sudden it all clicks in that it's work at one moment. In general, I really enjoy having these opportunities to work in so many countries and do such various projects. Do you ever say no? Uh, are there are times when you say my workload is just too much or my desk is too stacked. I just can't do that. Right no, I, I never – first of all, my desk is completely clean and my perfect, impression. absolutely nothing on it. <laughs> the less you have on your desk, the more productive you I are. I subscribe to that. Yeah. And, okay. uh, but uh, second of all, no, I never say no if it's a great 
project, meaning I don't think that, oh, I have too much, I'll handle it somehow. And I managed to handle it, actually. I, I handle it because I think I run a very organized practice and, uh, and I, my staff and the people I work with are super organized, too. And I think that's the way we, we get a lot accomplished. So, um, but with that said, you know, the times I say no is because they're projects I don't believe in or they're projects that ethically I don't agree with or, right. um, or they're just projects that just seem – I get a lot of startups, for example, come to me or people who are like inventors – you know, there's a lot of that, and there's more and more going on. I think we're living in the new enlightenment of the of of the epoch of uh, of um, the entrepreneur mm. at this point. Everybody wants to have their own business, so there's a lot of those no's for that because a lot of people come with zero business plan. They have no idea what they're really doing, but they have just an idea, and an idea is not enough. And I always say we all have lots of ideas. It starts with idea, it's not already, enough, but it's not enough. Yeah. But so on the heels of that, when you lecture and teach young designers who want to do their own thing, what what kind of advice do you give them? What do you tell them? By way of starting out, based on your your early times and career to where you are today, what do you tell the younger folk who want to follow in your footsteps? How hard yeah, the, is it? What I, what I always tell them is that they should get a lot of experience. Uh, there's a tendency also that everybody wants to be famous at a young age too. Well, and yeah. we're, we've gone to this strange idea. People graduate from university or school almost in any field and they expect to all of a sudden overnight you know, become important in their field. But, you know, design, like, like art, like, uh, well, like a lot, of, a lot of professions, are unlike professions like being a model or, or, or being an athlete, where you've got your whole life to build a career and to establish yourself. So the best thing to do is pay your dues a little bit. And the way you pay your dues is you go and work for somebody who you admire, you know, or a company you admire, know, and learn as much as you can. But don't you agree, and I think you said a little bit before, that the youth today doesn't have that patience. They want to go from zero to 90 and they want to be at the CEO of the company and they want to, the expectation today is like, as you said, I want to be an entrepreneur. I want my own business. I don't want to take the time like you and I did to grow as individuals and people and grow in our skill level and grow in our talent level and then grow in business. Well, but, but there are some that do and that's the point of when I – at least when I was, I was an associate professor for 12 years, that's what I imbued or tried to get across into my students was this notion of learn to learn I call it. You know, where, where you – once you graduate from university, you should continue to try to teach yourself and learn. Mm. It's not like, oh, I've done my learning. Now I just do my work. It only just begins when you graduate it only begins, from university. Exactly. And, and uh, number two is I think you can inspire. I do this a lot. I write a lot of books. I, I lecture all over the world. I I try to inspire, especially young designers, to think about uh, – to slow down a little bit, to think about contributing, to think about what they're really doing, why Amen. they're really doing it, and what they're putting into the world. Because, you know, also the thing about design, it's on one hand, it's a fantastic, uh, let's say, fact or faction of our globalization, meaning that, you know, we all have these phenomenal products, very inexpensive, very accessible. The world is shrinking. It's amazing what's happened. This is from, you know, the idea of industrial design, really. At the same time, the world's becoming kind of similar. And it becoming exhausted with commodity. So there's more things than ever before. <clears throat> so the question is, if you're going to put something into the world, you need to a little bit think about why you're doing it, what the contribution is. And, and that's the, 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 I think, the more intellectual process is to sit back a little bit and, and do better work and to think about what goes into the world. Kareem, pink is surely one of your trademarks, and I, I think I read some. Talk about that. <laughs> I read some of the GQ, but GQ said you've made it masculine. Yeah, so that was a very nice. What is it about the color pink? Tell me. You know, 
you know, okay, this is how a quick story. Because I, I think it's awesome. I was, I was five or six years old. We were in London, living in London, and my mother took us to buy winter coats. And we were over in the boys' section and with my brother, and we were looking at these all these blue and brown coats, I think. And I looked over and I saw these hot pink coats on the other side. So I ran over because I think as a child, and I watch my child now do this, kind of obsessed with beautiful kind of fluorescent colors and bright colors. I ran over and I put one on, and my mother was for you know open-minded enough she bought it for me next thing you know i had pink socks next thing you know i had you know and i loved pink as a child so i went through this you know all pink and i was a boy and there were no issues really i i never got ridiculed at school there was nothing it went you know and then by the time i got to university then um and after i started working in the profession that's when it all got a little weird right so i got conservative you know got myself some black suits et cetera. Et cetera. <laughs> i tried, cannot even imagine that <laughs> tried to fit in and i fit in to the point where eventually as soon as I started to have a little bit of, let's say, a feeling of self, you know, that I, I can contribute something in this world of my own, I started to go back and I, I just enjoy the color. But what, what the interesting thing about the color is 30, 25 years ago, I was making products for Black & Decker and I remember I wanted to make the women's electric drills. Black & Decker, pink, yeah, wow. You know, and they, they thought I was out of my mind. And I remember making products for Bioneer and I was trying to make them pink and everybody thought I was out of my mind. I was trying to make these pink products. Now look at today. You can buy any the most serious product. You can buy a Nikon, fifteen hundred dollar Nikon in pink. Mm-hmm. You know, so the world has really kind of changed that way. It, what I like about the color is everybody when they look at it, especially if you're wearing it. Like if, you, if tomorrow you were Vince, we were wearing a, a pink suit, people would probably love it. You know, because they look at it and they feel like positive. There's this kind of energy. You know, and the only thing is they always say is, well. You know, I don't think I could pull that off, but you can. Well, I think anybody could pull it off. Really. It, it, I was just going to say, it's all in the way you wear it. It's all in the way you wear anything, sure. basically. Yeah, you know, sure. it, it's not the clothes that make the person. It's the person that makes you know, the clothes or whatever you're wearing. Back in 2000, you wrote a book, I Want to Change the World. Okay, Have you succeeded? Um, well, you know what? I, 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 Are you still on that journey? I'm, I think I'm on the journey. I don't know what, if I've succeeded or not in the sense that I think we're all – all of us that want to really do something in this life and make some change I think are contributing in one way or another, even in a very, very minuscule way. So hopefully I've done something in a very minuscule way. What inspires you every day when you get out of bed is, as we all do and you wake up in the morning, you may get that first cup of coffee. I mean what inspires you to get through and you know, especially a New York day like today when it's kind of messy and sloppy out there. But what, what inspires you to, to, to get up in the morning to do what you do, to be great at what you do and as you said earlier in the interview, to love what you do? What, mm-hmm. what, what's that inspiration for you? You know, I think it's a, it's a, it's a feedback, meaning that when I do something that uh, – that it's creative and contributive, and and not only creative and contributive. I mean, because my profession is very contributive on a on a financial level too. I mean, companies do really well with a lot of the products I design and et cetera. So, but if I feel like I'm contributing to others and making things happen, that's a phenomenal form of satisfaction to me. And also, I'm a believer that we're all here to create. And every profession, no matter where we are, it's it's kind of as if if there is a kind of master plan. It was that human beings are here to create and we procreate or we intellectually create. And I think it's creation for all of us that drives us. And if you look at the way the world has changed and all the real contribution, those are all just creative thinkers. You know, it's a pool of all of us trying to perpetuate because we have the mind. We've been given the mind right. to create. So right. we make a child. That's one form of creation. And we shape this world for a better place. That's another form of creation. We have less than a minute left, unfortunately. So, but my my last question would be, what's next for Kareem? I mean, you've been involved in so many things as we've talked about, and as you know, most of us know, 
What's next? Any good secrets for us? Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, right around the corner, a lot of projects. Right around the corner. Uh, a lot of things. Uh, a lot of, I just finished several hotels in Malaysia, and I'm working on a huge one in Amsterdam, and I'm doing a, quite a few buildings in the world. But I have a really nice condo project opening up in uh, Latvia, in Riga. And a uh, nice uh, shopping mall I just designed in St. Petersburg. And, and even more so, I'm really looking forward to in this year, we'll see two buildings finally complete here in, in Manhattan and Harlem that I've done with HAP, which funny con- controversy was it? I don't know if you saw a lot. I but did. The, the balconies were pink. <laughs> I didn't want to ask boy, you about them. I like them, actually. Boy, that I, you know, that was incredible about it. Re- absurd. You've, you've toned it down completely. Yeah, it's toned, it's toned down out of, uh, out of pressure, public pressure. <laughs> Anyway, um, but uh, but you know I'll, I'll I'll make some pink buildings in other parts of the world. So. You certainly will. Anyway. Listen, always a pleasure to see you and talk to you. Thank you for your business on behalf of Blue, and uh, come back again and I, talk to I us. I appreciate you inviting me. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks. We are going to take a break, and we'll be back right after the break with our star panel. Don't go away. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we're back. I just wanted to leave you with one quote from Kareem that I didn't get a chance to mention. He says, we must make our own opportunities. The phone does not ring if you do not show the world what you can do. He has certainly done so, and we thank him once again for being our guest this morning here on Good Morning New York. We are back. Segment three with our star panel. I have Perul Brombeck from CORE, Niall Lundgren from Dalian Realty, Rachel Altschuler from Douglas Element, uh, Ivy Ray from Blue Realty Group, and Deborah Hoffman from Town Residential. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, Vince. Good morning. Good morning. Um, is everybody doing well on this snowy, cold um, Tuesday morning? Polar vortex. I'm is dreaming back. of Tulum. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's only been a week for me that I'm back, and it's it's still kind of shocking. <laughs> well, anyway, I've addressed my daylight savings of... time cards today. Oh, really? I know it's less than a month well, away. Well, the, the beginning of daylight savings time is, believe it or not, in just two and a half weeks. I know. Yeah. So got to get them less out. Than a month less away. than a month away. Wow. It is coming. Oh, it is coming. so exciting. That is exciting. Yeah. That cool. Changes everything when you know it that. It does. Yep. It certainly does. I think it's all up here. It's a mind thing. Yeah. So we let, like that, right? That's right. Light. I wanted to cheer you all up. 
<laughs> there you go. All right, look, let's, uh, some of the things we wanted to talk about today, when apartment listing when apartment listings are misleading and we've all as brokers, you know, gone through the databases and searched for apartments for our clients and our clients have certainly done the same thing on their own and have come back to us and say, "Hey, something doesn't look right here." So a buyer said that during a recent search to buy an apartment, he came across many listings uh, on websites that were incorrect. Many studios were listed as one-bedrooms, even some one-bedrooms listed as two-bedrooms. The square footage was frequently incorrect with different numbers on different uh, websites. I find that the common charges and the taxes cited were also unrealistic or unreliable. My question to you guys out there, are, are there regulations in place somewhere out there that um, – protect us against such such poor standards. I mean, why does this happen? Why do we, when we look at listings out there, and again, this is our profession, this is our bread and butter, if we can't provide accuracy to our clients out there, I mean, we look bad. What Are, what, are there regulations to protect us against this stuff? I, I don't think there to- are any real regulations in place, specifically because in Manhattan, we all know we don't have a multiple listing service. But what keeps a lot of us honest and kind of a backdoor way is there have been many lawsuits regarding inaccurate square footage and things like this. And most of our companies, and I'm sure you gentlemen who have your own companies do this as well, you warn your agents about accuracy. And sometimes we don't even quote square footage because it's protecting us, but it's also protecting the clients. Yeah, but what about when you see, like, you know, like I read before, a studio, you know, says it's a one bedroom. I mean, you know, we we have these terms, junior one, or somebody puts up a wall and they want to call it a one bed. You've got a junior four that they want to wall off the dining area, make it a second bedroom. Legitimately, these are incorrect ways to put listings out there, but but nonetheless, you know, we see them every day. I, How do we ward against that? I agree with you. I think the general public is at a great disadvantage. And people that are on the market for the first time, say newcomers coming to New York City, whether they're renting or buying, have no clue about the depth of potential dishonesty that goes on in our advertising. And, um, I, you know, it only happens to you as an agent a few times if you're a seasoned one. I'm curious if you guys agree. I don't take a buyer anywhere unless I call up and confirm everything, you know, that's – it's on the listing and if it looks by photographs and says in content that it's blasting with light i ask if there's light in the unit if in fact it's one of the you know primary things that my buyer or renter needs and i think you just mentioned a big one is is for them to say that it's two bedroom when it's actually one bedroom home office yeah. which is going to be for those of you that <clears throat> don't know it's an internal room with no windows whatsoever so i get agents on the phone and i've even had agents be dishonest with me and show up and have things be different. So. Well, I think you would agree because you know you, you manage agents, as we say all the time, as well as I do. I think it comes down to when you're experienced enough and you're looking at floor plans, you can kind of tell, regardless of what the text is saying, what the floor plan really is, if it's a junior one with a wall, if it's a junior four with a wall, or if it is a legitimate one or two bedroom apartment. So when you're coaching your new agents, are you telling them to kind of look out for these things because somebody brand new looks at a listing and says it's a two-bedroom apartment. Well, maybe there's not a window. Maybe there's not a closet. And, and there's usually only one bathroom. And there's no floor plan. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, that's, well, we do have floor plan coaching. Right? I coach them up on floor <clears throat> plans. So that's, I think that's an integral – Like, it's very important as you get into real estate to understand floor plans yeah. because of New York price points are different. So 
people with a one bed uh, budget are looking for a two bed, right? Because they're looking to, you know, they're about to have a child or something like that. So a junior four actually might work for them. So being creative and understanding how to kind of navigate the listings is, is vital to being actually mm-hmm. a good broker. So you will see dishonesty, but part of it is that broker trying to get to that demographic. So you have to be able to sift through that mm-hmm. as a broker and find out or good then you know, run multiple searches, run the one bed search, run the junior four search, and then run the two bed search because there could be a one bed that's listed correctly that actually might have a home office that might it might be the the right property for the for the person so training on home floor plans is is critical to being a good agent yeah yeah and i think there's a fine line between um trying to bring traffic through and increase exposure versus dishonesty so you know we all say junior four and that's okay convertible two convertible three which may be true if the floor plan is accurate right but then there's the you know then you're just pissing buyers off if you're completely dishonest because they walk in and they feel that the rug was pulled out you know, under them. Yeah, I would prefer to see the word convertible in that scenario because it mm-hmm. can convert to a two-bedroom if it's not ideal and it's not officially a two-bedroom apartment, but it can convert to a two yeah. should you do you know, certain things. So those types of things, when I, those words, when I read a listing, I'm comfortable with it because I understand what that means. Right. Let's move on. Well, the logic of an that's you bring up the best point, which is this is an opportunity I'd like to take to sort of say this is why buyers and renters who don't think that they need a broker and can do this on their own uh, should rethink that notion because Absolutely. that is precisely <laughs> the service that we provide. And in and to go back to your original statement about are there regulations, there are actually square footage regulations on what is to be considered a bedroom or not. Um, There's also regulation around whether there's a window or not, as Ivy mentioned. So there are regulations in place that are there to protect, not that every broker follows them, but those of us who understand what those rules are. Uh, When we look at the floor plans, as Niall mentioned, you know, um, we can provide that clarity and also delineation of what price somebody should be paying for what apartment. Exactly. I I 100% agree with that. So let's move on. The logic of an empty $100 million apartment. So, you know, this this prevails, unfortunately, around the city. For most investors, a diversified portfolio means a prudent mix of stocks and bonds. For the global elite, diversification increasingly means splurging on New York apartments that can cost tens of millions of dollars or more. Across Manhattan, like no place else, real estate developers are scrambling to meet surging demand from buyers around the world who are prepared to pay record-setting prices. I mean, what did we recently announce? A $130 million penthouse. Really? Um, So it seems to be a wonderful way to justify investing in your toys, right? Everybody's got toys in their life. Why? I mean, what is this about? Well, recently I just saw a really interesting article about (laughs) the legality of the money that comes in um, at those price points um, from an international standpoint. And, you know, ultimately, where does where where has that money come from, and who is stashing it in New York, and why? And then on the other end, it seems that we're driving that market. Um, when you look at you know big hedge fund owners, et cetera, who invest in these, is sort of the earning potential, which is you know there's such a value that we call quote unquote market value, a perceived value of a specific unit, a specific building. And a lot of these investors are simply looking at it from the point of view of if I buy this for $50 million, can I flip it in two years at 65 And 
I think one of the people who prominently does this consistently is this uh, one owner called, his name Scott Bomber. But there are many investors who are basically doing that because there is a value to the prestige of living in, at certain addresses. It, how do you how do you put a price on on a trophy property, guys? I mean, you know, we all see these these numbers coming out, and and new development developers are really killing the numbers out there, and you know, really increasing the value of the marketplace here in New York. But how do you how do you actively uh, uh, put a price on a trophy property? I mean, did he just pick numbers out of the air? You know, I think it was funny last night. I was reading something, and uh, some of you likely might have read the same material, and they were talking about pricing trophy properties. And they were said it's akin to carrots in a pink diamond and price per inch on a Warhol. Wow. <laughs> price per I inch on a Warhol. I saw that too and I, I had to smile. Yeah. Isn't that wild? That's incredible. Yeah. yeah. I did hear about that actually. Yeah. Um, why is new development killing these numbers, guys? I mean, you know, again, you know, you're not seeing the – although we did report a couple of weeks ago on the program that some of the co-ops have caught up with some of these astronomical prices, $40 million, $50 million, $70 million, $90 million for a co-op. But really still in this town, the new development developers are still killing these numbers. How do we sustain this? I think there's a few things going on and a few things that have not even been mentioned in the media. Yes, there are trophy properties. Yes, there's a lot of money in countries that are a little unstable. But what else is happening, which really hasn't hit the news, is some of these companies that are very unstable, you can't put a price on someone's life. And when you have a couple families getting together, forming a shell corporation to buy some of these properties, they're seeing it as safety. And the United States is still seen as the safe haven, no matter where you're coming from. And I just started seeing a lot of this happening in my personal business, and it hasn't hit the news, but it's real. So the developers could ask a price. They could see how much they throw against the wall to see what sticks. And on the other side, the people are saying, this is our lives, this is our family's lives, and we're going to get something that will last. Yeah, but did you see that there was also a greed and then there's also a good portion. You were just talking about the combination perhaps of family members coming together and gathering the money to make one of these premier purchases. But there are also this uh, – the risk level, you know, how long, as Vince was just saying, can we sustain this? And it was speaking about the percentage that – let me see, the risk inherent – in, in the, the success of this being contingent on a group of men and women in the world, which is a very small group that are billionaires, and say as per example that their livelihood, a good portion of what it is that they have is contingent upon, say, oil remaining the same. So if a 50% drop in oil happened, all of these people would be screwed. And if that's one of their primary variables, I mean there's a lot of things that could – affect these people's money and how long can we sustain the amount of premier property that's not only on the market now but that's coming I mean, i'm so curious about it it is a huge bubble it's it's unbelievable actually when you think about it and you know who, who knows where it goes uh we're going to go to break we will be back right after these messages so don't go away The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. 
put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we're back. Before we continue with the panel, I just wanted to go through a couple of things here. It was a memorable week in New York City broadcasting last week, and as part of New York Broadcasting Online here at Good Morning New York, uh, we wanted to make mention of a few things here. New York City police are looking into what caused the car crash that killed 60 Minutes correspondent Bob Simon. Mm -hmm. The livery cab was traveling north on the West Side Highway. When, it, when the crash occurred, Simon died from blunt force injuries to his head and torso, and he wasn't wearing a seatbelt. Simon covered most major overseas conflicts and news stories since the 1960s, and he was 73 years old. There will be a private memorial service today for the CBS reporter at New York's Metropolitan Opera House. On a side note, I happened to be uh, a couple cars back uh, that night traveling up the West Side Highway in an Uber car when the whole thing happened, so... It's a little scary for me. There will be um, – I'm sorry. Brian Williams, the NBC trusted voice in news for decades, was suspended last week by the network for stretching the truth about wartime combat experiences several times over the last several years. A stunning fall from grace. He will be suspended from the network without pay for six months. Uh, John Stewart announced on his show last week that after more than 17 years hosting Comedy Central's The Daily Show, he was stepping down at some point this year. That has not been determined his plans still remain unclear, but you can be sure he will resurface at some point. Uh, Rosie O'Donnell has ended her second stint on The View. She announced last weekend she was leaving. O'Donnell, who was going through a divorce and had a heart attack last year, said she needed to reduce the stress in her life. Her last show was on Thursday. Uh, and if you were looking for a famous person on Sunday night, they were probably all at the Saturday Night Live 40-year anniversary red mm. carpet. From Billy Crystal and Donald Trump to Jim Carrey and Sarah Palin, uh, celebrities from all over came to New York to celebrate 40 years of staying uh, Saturday Night Live. Music played a big part of SNL's 40th anniversary festivities, starting with Jimmy Fallon and Justin Timberlake opening a song and dance number which channeled years of famous uh, catchphrases and characters. SNL debuted on October 11th in 1975 and is still going strong. The special anniversary show aired on Sunday for three and a half hours. It was classic and well done. And Lauren Michaels, the executive producer of that show, is literally a genius. Anyway, moving on, let's talk about skyrocketing town townhouse prices and how they are outpacing co-ops and condos in this town. Manhattan townhouses are officially the hottest commodity in real estate. As I said last week in my interview, Go figure. this is what I want to do. Yeah. 
Buyers who bought townhouses a decade ago would likely see a significantly bigger return on their investment if they sold today than if they had bought condos or co-ops, according to new report. The median price of a Manhattan townhouse rose a whopping 30.2% over the past decade, while the median price of a condo or co-op rose 25.3%. That report by Douglas Elliman. By the way, townhouse sales account for just 2.5% of all Manhattan residential sales. So 10 years ago, no one wanted townhouses. What has caused this change? Why? I think buying real property, just mm-hmm. real real property in Manhattan is what people are looking for. I mean, you could buy a condo, you could buy shares <clears> in a co-op, but buying real property that's an asset that's tangible is something that people are excited about. Um, from what and I see I think, from my... And I think circumventing the whole co-op and condo process and you know, being limited by their policies. I think that's a huge... uh, And also, secondly, it's space. My client who bought on Central Park West uh, three years ago now wants a townhouse. And interestingly enough, a doorman was really important to him. And now he just wants a lot of rooms. So it's interesting to see the, the progression, especially I want to bring up Brooklyn because Brooklyn townhouses are just insane right now. Well, that's we reported a couple of weeks ago, three million more. You know, townhouses for under a million and flipping them for one point five to two million. It's insane. It's also about looking at the numbers that are that are printed intelligently in the sense that um, if you look at who buys townhouses, we're looking at the same sort of demographic, maybe not the foreign buyers, but the same demographic as uh, you know, new development, like kind of high end buyers. And so if you were to only compare the prices of townhouses to those three, $4,000 a square foot new developments, then I think that we would look at a different picture of how the townhouses are comparing price-wise to that sort of a luxury property within that market space. Parul, when, yeah. when you talk about who the buyers are for townhouses, the word anonymity comes into, into mind here. Do you think people buy it because they don't want to be involved with doormen or luxury buildings? They want to live quietly, whether it be a celebrity, whether it be the number one or number two guy at Goldman Sachs, or wherever they, they are, they want to be anonymous. Does that play Definitely. into this? I think that that is a big part of it. I think you see that with celebrities and specifically finance people very frequently. But, you know, it is that characteristic high-end buyer in Manhattan. Um, in Brooklyn, I think that there is a, a larger variety of buyers on townhouses. And I think that, I mean, in all honesty, to echo Rachel, I mean, I think that that market is quite interesting and, and really sort of fun to fun to dabble in for sure. You know, I want to pick up where uh, – I'm sorry, Vince. Go, go, go. Okay, I want to pick up or, or follow up where Niall was in that I think that from my perspective, it's – you know, everything's in trends and in seasons. I personally think that people are luxury, doormaned, amenitied out. I know a lot of people that are. And I think I that am. people – I know. And I think that people are returning to old school. And people are like, fine, you're getting off Facebook and people are like, of course, not going to put down their devices. But, you know, you can only take so much. And old school is townhouses. Old school is Manhattan. Old school is your own walls. Old school, right? Is yes, and I'm sure, I'm sure a lot of people have worked with buyers who, who want to buy in townhouses initially. And I think the thing to keep in mind with townhouses, besides like the crystal cut mansion style, one single families, if you want to buy and then convert, sometimes there's hair 
on those those types of deals. And a lot of people think that they're, they're they they have a stomach to deal with it, but they can't. You know, having a rent stabilized tenant where you have to negotiate a buyout or uh-huh. or three occupied mm-hmm. units that are, that are that are you know not that are for example the old last owner you know had one of their family members in there with a life lease or something like that. They have to like you know maneuver around, and that takes a certain threshold in in your stomach to deal with. But if mm-hmm. you can if you can li- literally you know vacate a building like that and, and unlock it, then you're unleashing you know it's like oil in the ground. You're unleashing uh, unbelievable and incredible agreed. value. So you have yeah. to have a certain stomach for what type of townhouse that you're looking for. If it has hair, if it has, if it doesn't have hair, um, and then you know you, you kind of play it that way, I guess. And I've seen buyers go from you know I want a townhouse, I want a townhouse, and then just you know end up in a, in a condo. But it, it yeah, really depends on the buyer. Point, I mean, I feel that upkeep of a townhouse. One at a time. One at a time. One at a time. Go ahead. Go ahead, Rachel. Oh, yeah. No, I was just saying the financial and physical upkeep of a townhouse typically ends up being the deal breaker um, because the the romantic idea of having one is sort of put aside when you think about shoveling your own sidewalk and the taxes. I don't think people realize that. And then they go, oh, well, maybe it's nice to have a super. Maybe it's nice to have, you know, a locked-in maintenance that's much lower every every month. So it's, it's changing, but I think for the most part, um, it's not for everyone. Like Niall said, it's, it's really not for everybody. It takes a, a special buyer. Perul, you wanted to say something? Well, Rachel took the words out of my mouth. I was like, you know, Niall brings up a really good point of why people walk away from wanting to buy townhouses or, the, you know, what goes into owning one. Um, generally, it requires renovation, even if not. Um, just the upkeep is something you have to do mm-hmm. yourself versus having a super. However, you know, to get to the original question of, why there, does there seem to be such an allure for townhouses now is I think that, you know, the savvy investor and buyer is recognizing that, you know, it's Manhattan shrinking and that property is just becoming more and more obsolete. Land prices are going up. You know, there's nowhere else to really build. So these townhouses are becoming that much more of sort of a, you know, a rare commodity and people want to grab one while they still can. Yeah, but you know, my partner, my business partner, Shane, and I manage a townhouse, and he reminds me almost on a daily basis how much work goes into the upkeep of these houses. Now, mind you, keep in mind the one I'm talking about has been completely renovated, but you know, it has an elevator and it has all kinds of elaborate security systems and music systems. And I have to tell you something every day, every day, something is amiss. Every day, there's another, you know, SOS and something needs to be fixed. And, you know, when you're spending all these kinds of dollars, wow. uh, it, it's it's amazing how you um, need to spend more to maintain them. And once again, we're out of time. So here at Good Morning New York, thank you for being here with us one more time. We are back next Tuesday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific, live here on Voice America. You can always catch the show later in the day uh, on podcast or anytime on our website, voiceamerica.com. For all of us at Voice America all around the world, thanks for joining me, and I will see you next week. Bye, everybody. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in this week. Please join us for another edition of Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco next Tuesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Here's hoping all of your transactions are successful ones.